News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Pete Callender here. And uh, we want to welcome back to the program Sean Spicer. He is the author of the new book, Radical Nation, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris's Dangerous Plan for America. He was also President Trump's first White House press secretary, and he is the host of Spicer and Company on Newsmax TV. Welcome back, Sean. How are you? It's good to be back with you. Thanks for having me. Sure. Did you have a good Thanksgiving? Uh, do anything special? I did, thank you. We, no, we had, um, it was just, not just, but we had all the family in town, so it was good to... to be able to not have to travel, but it definitely costs more because of uh, these policies. Right. Well, yeah, that's well. But you could use all the savings from your July Fourth barbecue. You use yeah. the seventeen I'll, or eighteen cents, whatever that was. I was going to say it's about fifteen, sixteen cents. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but then I was thinking it, it, it somehow I, I forgot to do that. So uh, yet again, I, you know what the other issue is? At least I, if I had traveled, I would have used an electric car because I can't, apparently, according to Pete Buttigieg. You know, if you're smart, you buy an electric car and you never have to pay for gas. So right. <laughs> you have that $100,000 to pick out for the Tesla, you're all set. Right. Uh, yeah, slight problem if your, I guess, energy for the car comes from the wall socket that's connected to a, what, like a natural gas plant. You might be in some trouble. Uh, right, right, right. But, uh, but, but we digress. Um, so I, I was actually reading up on an interview that you had given to, is it Eric Prince at Marion West a couple of uh, days ago? And uh, you had talked about how CNN and then BuzzFeed started shopping around the story of the Steele dossier stuff to you. And you said that, quote, I pointed out at that time it was wrong. I could demonstrably prove it was wrong. And yet they stuck by it. Um, so yeah. I was kind of curious, like, can you can you talk at all about like what occurred in that conversation? What, how could you prove that that was wrong to them that they ignored yeah, so let me walk you through real quick what happened. Basically, at around 2 o'clock that day, I got a call initially from Jake Tapper and then from CNN saying, hey, there was this dossier. You guys were, you know, it was given to the president on January 5th when he had been briefed by the intelligence heads. And I said, well, that's not true. I was in the room with him when he got briefed. I have a security clearance, so I was able to stay in the room with the president when he got briefed. It's not true. In fact, the dossier at the time was not ready, blah, blah, blah. And I walked him through it, and they said, well, that's just, you know, we have our sources. And I was like, okay, well, I was literally in the room. <laughs> this is what happened. Um, ironically, on that alone, uh, Clapper and Comey have both backed up my version, okay? Because, I mean, I, I mean it's not like even a close call. The right. dossier wasn't done at the time. So I say that because you have to understand that down to the second point, which is, so now we're like, okay, so they're going with this story. And we called Mike Pompeo. He's the incoming uh, CIA director. And we said, can you go to what they call a skiff, which is a secure room where you can read classified information. He was on the Intel committee. He, um, he had been, uh, so he had, he had access, you know, he had to go to this place. They brought the dossier to him. Then we went to, um, uh, we went to a skiff myself and a couple other members of the Trump team that had security clearances. They read it to us. And one of the allegations in it was that Michael Cohen, then the president's attorney, had done some nefarious stuff in Prague. Right. So I called Michael Cohen. I said, hey, um, where are you? He said, blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay, can you come back? And I need you to bring your passport. He's like, okay, are you crazy? I said, <laughs> no, just trust me on this. He drives back with his passport. He hands it to me. I look through it. Not only had he never been to Prague, he hadn't been out of the country in even close to the time frame. Yeah. So I was saying, hey, guys, look, look, one of these allegations is about Michael Cohen. He's been to Prague. I can show you, I can literally show you the, um, uh, the passport 
And they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what about, and I was like, you've got to be kidding me. So it's going to be, you know, we're going to go through this one by one. But I, I write about that in Radical Nation, the book that you mentioned, because I, I mean, everyone likes to talk about it. I literally lived it. I had, I was in the briefing on the fifth. I watched Comey go to the back of the room and ask the president after the briefing was done, can we speak privately for a moment? The president agrees. And that's where he verbally briefs him on this two page dossier and tells him that, you know, there's some unproven allegations, um, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and then that's why, like I said, we, we were like, okay, we got to actually have somebody read this to us to tell us what's in it. And that's when Pompeo gets involved. Right. But, but that's why I'm saying, like, I could tell Jake Tapper, hey, I was in the room. This is what happened. It wasn't prepared yet. That was the dirty secret, is that the dossier wasn't done yet. They had just wanted to make sure that they were briefing him ahead of President Obama and that they wanted to be able to tell him verbally what was in it. Um, and, you know, again, CNN and Jake Tapper were like, yeah, but we have sources. And I was like, okay, well, you know, the, the irony is, is that both Clapper and Comey subsequently on their book tours were asked about it and backed up my version of it which, you know, isn't a close call because of, you know, like I said, yeah. it, 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 and I don't know why, but again, if you're, if you're being lied to by your source, right, which is what Tapper was, right, right meaning that, that wouldn't you then say, gosh, if you're lying to me about who was in the room or whatever, maybe I should be concerned about how the rest of what you're telling me. Right. And instead, they were like, well, let's just go with it because, you know, hey, it's salacious and it's against Trump. Right. It, it's, uh, it, it's laundering. They laundered the story because they knew they couldn't do it without that source and without some sort of a news hook. I mean, BuzzFeed went ahead and published it and then everybody had their hook. But uh, the hook was that Comey gave the briefing, right? If Comey doesn't give the briefing on material that they knew to be false, then there's no way that the news agencies could could grab the hook, basically. Right, but but basically, what they did, though, just to be clear, is it was like, well, we're not, we're not, um, we're not going to confirm this. We're just going to say we're going to leave it up to the viewer or the reader to to look at. It. And my answer is, wait a second. So that's the new standard. We just push things out into the to the to the world, and now anytime someone makes an allegation, the the answer is, well, let's just let you know the viewer or the reader assess that. Yeah. So I, I just, I mean, I want people to understand what that means. It sounds anytime that there is a story, all you have to do is say, well, we're not actually confirming it or denying it or whatever. We are literally just, we're just letting the world decide whether that's true or not. And I'm going, okay, if that's the new standard, then let's play going forward. But that's part of the point that I make in Radical Nation in the book. I, I make it clear that like you have a press that is willing to overlook anything if it makes you know, in this case, Trump, but definitely the right look bad. So, you know, you have to understand that what you are seeing from this, from the media, um, they are complicit with promoting the Biden agenda and, and they will do anything they can to either overlook or, uh, you know, uh, you, to, to do anything they can to make sure that the narrative that they want to get out gets out. Well, and narrative over truth. Uh, how about uh, Chris Cuomo? A perfect poster boy for that. Have yeah, you ever been? You've been on Chris's show, and I'm sure, right, over the past uh, few years. I have. Yeah. And, and, well, not the past few. Uh, <laughs> he hasn't, he hasn't. But but I will. I've been on it before. And and the funny thing about this again is that facts first. Cuomo, who's all about telling the truth, <laughs> lied. He said that he wasn't advising his brother. Clearly, the text proved that that's not the case. He was advising his brother. Yeah, and doing oppo research on the accused on one of the accusers and trying to 
to help uh, uh, you know minimize her impact on the takedown of his brother, a- and then lying to CNN. If we give CNN the benefit of the doubt, um, well, that- and just, but, but stop for a second and think about this. Yeah, CNN prides itself on its investigative reporting. <laughs> so either again, you got to go back to a couple things. Either you're incompetent at your job, or you're a liar. But it's one of the two. Right. Well, that's a tough call because I usually say the same. Like I, I usually, all right, I usually default to incompetence. I do, but at some point, the evidence becomes enough where, yeah, you have to say, okay, this is this is competence, and it's just they're they're trying to cover up, they're trying to lie. And like for example, you mentioned this in a uh, an op ed you did at townhall.com, dot uh, com, which I thought was a, a great point about uh, the the D.C. statehood issue. That yes. like there is a way that if you want the people of Washington, D.C. to get the representation that you claim this is all about, there is a way for that to happen. But they don't want it to happen that way because it doesn't give them power. Yet the media Correct. never tells you about that mechanism. Well, and just so your viewers understand this, in 1790, the framers took parts of Virginia and part of Maryland to create the District of Columbia. They wanted to have an area for the federal government that wasn't in any state. Right. So they create this thing, the District of Columbia. But then in 1835, they give back to Virginia what they had taken because the idea was that uh, that they wanted to um, – they, they gave back to Virginia what they had taken because they, they didn't use it anymore, right? So, again, if your concern is about voting rights for D.C., right, then, then – you would say, okay, well, then let's give back the part of Maryland to Maryland, which was taken from them. Okay, easy peasy, that's solved. And, oh, by the way, you keep the framers' intent, you just draw a circle from the White House to the Capitol and keep a federal district uh, that, you know, where no one lives, so who cares? But that's not the goal, you're right, because what happens is if you, if you make the rest of what is left in Maryland a state, i.e., and call it the, you know, whatever they're trying to call this new state, then you get two additional senators that are going to vote Democrat because D.C. 95 to 5 is a a Democratic area. So Mm -hmm. you're basically like they just don't want to admit to you that their real motive isn't about voting rights because that's easy to solve. It's actually about getting two additional Democratic senators. Right. Yeah. It's uh, I think it was the last time also that government gave something back that it had originally taken. That was <laughs> all right. Uh, <laughs> uh, Sean Spicer, thanks so much for uh, your time today. The book is Radical Nation. You can pick it up at uh, Amazon and any other uh, bookstore. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris's dangerous plan for America. And uh, also catch him on Newsmax TV, Spicer and Company. Thanks so much. And uh, uh, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays to you and the family. You too. Thanks for having me. All right. On. Take care. News Talk 1110-993-WBT, 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. So the story is, just real quick, uh, that Sean Spicer wrote about at townhall.com. He said, if Democrats just want representation for the citizens of D.C., then they would support a plan proposed by Republicans that actually follows precedent. Back in 1835, the part of the district that was originally taken from Virginia that created the District of Columbia was ceded back to Virginia when legislators realized that the land there was not necessary. Republicans' plan would retain a federal district containing the Capitol, the White House, and the National Mall, and then it would retrocede the rest of the district back 
to Maryland. If this plan was adopted, the citizens of Washington, D.C. would have all the rights that Democrats claim they support. But if you do it this way, then Democrats would not get the additional two Senate seats. So they don't support it. Right? So they are, think about that. They are holding hostage the democracy, the rights of the people, right, to have taxation with representation, right, all of the slogans that they have been promoting and and chanting about uh, D.C. statehood. They don't want D.C. statehood for the people to have a voice. They want D.C. statehood so they can have power. Because if they just wanted people to have a voice, well, there's a way to do that, and Republicans have actually proposed it. And Democrats blocked it. This is an obvious power play, he goes on to say, by Democrats, and that they'll do anything, uh, all they can to make it happen while they still can. Congressional Republicans cannot allow themselves to be bullied into voting for that plan. That was at townhall.com. I also mentioned Chris Cuomo. I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, First, let me get over here to Ryan. Hello, Ryan. Welcome to the program. How are you? Hey, Pete. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. What's up? Well, I wanted to underscore something that your your interview just said a moment ago, right? I want to remind your listeners just of a couple things. One, that the journalistic standard for CNN and the legacy media is now no different than the Inquirer. It's no different. You'll be seeing, I'm sure you'll be seeing stories on Batboy any day now. Well, um, I, we have seen, I will say, we have seen some stories about the man who gave birth. We have seen some stories like that. There you go. See, there's no difference. The other thing I wanted to, and I'm sure you know about this, is the existence of native advertising. And no, there's been no better example of this than every single segment on MSNBC is brought to you by Pfizer. I mean, anyone who watches. And, and at this point, Pete, I only watch to make a list of the sponsors so I can call and tell them how nobody in my church is going to buy from them or whatever. It's the only reason I turn on MSNBC, MSNBC and CNN. Mm-hmm. It should be MSDNC and the Clinton News Network. Um, but this this is the state of journalism now. It's they're they're not and, and native advertising. Just for your listeners who don't know, native advertising is where a, a media company, whether it's print or or the cable news companies, cleverly disguise a story when it's actually an ad. And I'm sure most of your listeners see it on clickbait all the time. It's an interesting, compelling story. You click on it, and it turns out it's a commercial for AstraZeneca. This is this is legal now. This is this is what media looks like in this country, and I think I know why. I think we're t- the only thing that can save Joe Biden at this point, Pete. I'm sure you know is is a war. That's it. They're taking a war footing. They're, I mean, Ukraine, and I'll bet you that Ukraine and Taiwan will get invaded at the same time just to just to stymie President Potato Head. Your thoughts? I, I, I'm, I don't, I don't get into the speculation stuff because i just i find it's usually people make those types of predictions in order to justify present uh beliefs and like it's rare that you find somebody like for example uh your belief is that biden's going to lose and so they're going to do these things which would confirm your current beliefs now if no wars are uh uh declared and that doesn't happen then does that force you to abandon the beliefs that you have now, but in the future? Like, would like would you go back and say, oh, well, I was wrong, and so now I'm not going to believe those things any longer? Nobody ever goes back to reassess how they were wrong before and whether or not that changes their mind. And a classic example of this was after 
2008, I remember sitting at, the, at, at this very spot after the election of Barack Obama, and a fellow called in and he said, uh, look, I, he says, as a black guy, I never thought I would live to see the day when uh, we would have a black president. And I asked him why, and he said he didn't think that white people would vote for a black man for president. I said, well, now that you've seen this, does that change your opinion? And he said no. So, like, the the speculation that he would have offered prior to the election, right, would have said this will never happen. But even when it happened, he didn't want to go back and reassess. So I I just, I don't get into that kind of... You know, this is going to happen in order to save somebody's electoral prospects because I just I don't know. And and it's usually it, it just it's meant to confirm your current uh, opinions or biases. So News Talk 1110-993-WBT. So CNN has suspended Chris Cuomo. And apparently uh, he has a radio show on Sirius XM, which isn't really radio, is it? It's a satellite. Anyway, um, he said, it hurts to even say it. It's embarrassing, but I understand it. And I understand why some people feel the way they do about what I did. I've apologized in the past, and I mean it. It's the last thing I ever wanted to do was compromise any of my colleagues. I know they have a process that they think is important. I respect that process, so I'm not going to talk about this any more than that. Oh, is that convenient? He's not talking again. It's one of the things Cuomo really does. um, He really does excel at not talking about the thing that everybody is talking about when it is in regards to him and his brother's scandalous activities. So CNN suspended him, Chris Cuomo, indefinitely following revelations that he used media contacts to help his brother, the former New York governor, Andrew Cuomo, who was navigating allegations of sexual harassment. Those revelations came from documents that were published by the New York attorney general's office on Monday as part of its investigation headed up by Attorney General Letitia James, uh, who was looking at all of these accusations against the former governor. And by the way, this all eventually drove him right out of office. So they did this document dump, and in the documents they see all of these text messages, or media now sees, CNN now sees, these text messages from Chris Cuomo. CNN put out a statement that said, quote, These documents point to a greater level of involvement in his brother's efforts than we previously knew. As a result, we have suspended Chris Cuomo indefinitely pending further evaluation. Gosh. I mean, joke's on Cuomo, right? I mean, only... I mean, if he had only performed a sex act on himself during a corporate video conference, he would not be in this kind of trouble. He would... All right. Uh... Seriously, you got Tubin. Tubin's back on the air. Look, if they let Tubin back on, I'm thinking Cuomo, he's got a pretty good shot, right? He's got to have a pretty good shot. Anderson Cooper is uh, temporarily taking over the 9 p.m. time slot, and I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. Wait, CNN has a show on at 9 p.m.? True, it's Chris Cuomo's show. That's where he would bring his, his brother, the love gov, from New York, he'd put him on the air and they would 
hold up giant Q-tips and talk about who mom loved best. Uh, yeah, that's that was the kind of coverage that they did until, until all of a sudden, wait a minute, I think Andrew Cuomo was killing people with these policies. And then it's like, well, we don't really want to talk about this stuff because it's too close. And then there was the sexual harassment, which actually... Those are the allegations that took him down. It wasn't even the killing of the thousands of old people with the COVID policies. It wasn't even that that took him down. It was the groping of the women. That's what forced him out of office. And when that came up, what happened? Chris Cuomo's like, I can't talk about it. And Cuomo initially said that, you know, okay, well, I... I strategized. I talked with him. He's my brother, and I can no more disown my brother than Obama could disown uh, his pastor of the church. No, I'm kidding. But that's basically, I mean, that was the defense. It was like, oh, this is family. We were talking as brothers. I apologize. This was back in May. The Washington Post revealed at that time that he had participated in strategy calls with his brother on how to navigate the allegations of harassment. Chris Cuomo again addressed the matter then after uh, after his brother resigned as governor. And the Attorney General of New York published the report on the allegations against Andrew by 11 different women. Now, Chris Cuomo went on the air and said, quote, I never attacked nor encouraged anyone to attack any woman who came forward. I never made calls to the press about, about my brother's situation. That's from National Review's Zachary Evans. Over at Reason.com, documents reveal that Chris Cuomo did actually actively use his journalistic access and connections to find out more information about the accusers and potentially to try to discredit them. He texted his brother's long-serving handler, Melissa DeRosa, about one of the accusers, and he said, quote, I have a lead on the wedding girl. Well, the wedding girl is Anna Ruck, or Rutch, who accused Andrew Cuomo, governor, of making a pass at her. And Chris's lead was a possible means of casting aspersions on her accusation. Chris Cuomo told the attorney general's fact finders that he had learned of a source who may tell him that Anna Ruck had ulterior motives, despite claiming during his interview with the attorney general's office that, quote, I would never do oppo research on anybody alleging anything like this. He actually clearly engaged in a form of opposition research to do just that. He wasn't just passively listening to his brother's side of the story and giving words of encouragement. No, no. He took part in the strategizing and the response. Um, Back to the National Review piece. Uh, Chris by the way, was uh, actually accused of sexual harassment by a journalist named Shelley Ross, who detailed her allegations in an op-ed back in September. She wrote that Chris had grabbed her buttock at a party back in 2005, shortly after she stepped down as producer, executive producer of Primetime Live, which is where Chris was an anchor on ABC before he went to CNN. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. My goodness. Talk 1110 99.3 WBT. So 
Uh, Twitter's got a brand new CEO. Yay. Parag Agrawal. I think is how he pronounces that. The first major initiative by Twitter in the Agrawal era. No, no, no. It's not an edit button. Don't get crazy. That's never coming. Uh, No, never going to happen. No, no, no. It's to make free speech freer. Just kidding. It's not that either. No, no. It's going to give Twitter's apparatchiks and activists even more power and less clarity on what's going to bring the ban hammer down. Awesome. That's exactly what we've been asking for. Ed Morrissey at hotair.com. He writes, Twitter safety makes it clear in a statement this morning that the aim is not just to protect private individuals. It is to keep people from identifying activists and dissidents. (laughs) Yeah. Don't you dare be doxing the Antifa people. As well as other people on the basis of pictures taken from actual public demonstrations. This is one of the things that I guess I, I maybe I just take for granted because of the the background that I have. You know, one of the things when you go to uh, journalism school, I went to Winthrop University, graduated out of their mass comm broadcast department, and um, one of the things that you, or several of the things, I guess, or many of the things that you learn about the laws surrounding what you can and cannot do in media. What's a public place? What's not, for example. Um, and if, uh, you know, if I'm walking down the street, I'm in a public space. If you take a picture of me at a public gathering in a public space, even like sometimes from if I'm standing on a sidewalk and I can see into your house, like people have been convicted of sex crimes for having a window open and being viewable from the street, from a public space. So, like, I understand sort of how these laws work, that you're not allowed to do certain things and you are allowed to do other things and where you are. But if you are out in public, um, you're allowed to be recorded. And what Twitter is now saying is you can't use those videos on our platform. You can't post those videos. If you and I are both out at a a demonstration and you start getting a little bit rowdy, and you start bashing skulls and breaking windows, and I film you. Sorry, I just said the F word. Not that one. Film. Right. I record you. Twitter says I I can't put that up because you are a private individual and I don't have your permission. Now, if I'm a corporate legacy media outlet, then I can apparently. See, some animals are more equal than others. Right. There are growing concerns about the misuse of media and information that is not available elsewhere online as a tool to harass, intimidate and reveal the identities of individuals sharing personal media such as images or videos can potentially violate a person's privacy and may lead to emotional or physical harm. So emotional harm is the standard we're going with now. So all I need to do is claim emotional harm. Well, no, I can because I'm a public person, but a private person who goes and, you know, beats up a bunch of people at a demonstration, can't be doxxed. A a private person who engages in looting and rioting 
You can't put their picture up for identification. No, no, no. They may suffer emotional harm for that. Twitter says the misuse of private media can affect everyone, but can have a disproportionate effect on women, activists, dissidents, and members of minority communities. So this is wokeism. We got the layer of wokeism as well, just piled right on top. They say, when we receive a report that a tweet contains unauthorized private media, we will now take action in line with our range of enforcement options. So Ed Morrissey writes, well, is this a response to the doxing of J.K. Rowling or the counter complaint by Rowling's doxers of having been fed the same sauce as the gander? You know what that was about, right? She had the temerities to suggest that women are women and trans women are not women, that transgender men are like or, or a man who who is a transgender woman is not a same anyway. So she said that and that got her in all sorts of trouble. How dare she identify only two sexes, two genders? Because we all know gender and sex is not the same thing, except if we need it to be the same thing in order to extrapolate out some new rights under law. But otherwise it's not the same thing. Right. So she said that men and women are different. And uh, because she's a feminist, this is a bit of a problem. Sometimes the feminists find themselves on the outs with the uh, with the transgender community. So she got doxxed for that, which means people publish personal information about, you know, your address, your phone number, that sort of stuff. So people can then target you for harassment. That's the reason why people do that. So then some of the people that did that to her, they got doxxed. And oh my gosh, they were so very upset. How dare you do to me what I did to you? Right? These issues are already covered, though, in Twitter safety rules. You're not allowed to do this. Okay? So this is not why they are implementing this new rule. Um, if the pictures come from a public protest, then it really isn't a privacy issue at all. People have the right to take pictures in the public square They don't have to get your consent to take the pictures or to publish them unless they expect to publish them to make a a profit commercially from the image, in which case then that that's a grayer area under the law. Okay, but making one's self into a public figure by conducting public protests means you forego the privacy concerns. That is at least what the law says. The ambiguity that Twitter is employing here, Ed Morrissey writes, and I completely agree, this is strategic. It allows Twitter's bureaucrats to arbitrarily apply the rule based on their own biases, their own beliefs, right? Their explanation assures users that they will always try to assess the context of the picture to see whether it's posted in the public interest or whether it will add value to public discourse or be relevant to the community. These are arbitrary and subjective standards. And I would also note they coincidentally come right after a jury acquitted Kyle Rittenhouse. Based on what? All the video that was uh, produced and recorded of the event. By the way, the video of Ahmaud Arbery's killers, that also probably would not allow it to be uh, published under these rules. So be very careful with these standards you guys are employing.